You are listening to the City on a Hill Sermon Podcast. For more information about our church and to support this ministry, visit cityonahilldfw.com. Thank you. Good morning. How are we doing? If you're a guest with us, glad you're here. Uh, for those of you tuning in online, uh, glad that you're tuning in at least. Would hope to see you soon, unless you're, of course, out of state. And then you just need to move to Texas, and That's you can right. be with us every... Everybody else is. Everyone else is. So <laughs> join the crowd. Join the crowd. We're continuing this morning in our study of systematic theology in a uh, series that we have called All Systems Go where we've been going through the classic doctrines of our faith. We're looking at what the entirety of Scripture teaches about these specific topics and and doctrines. And we've covered a lot so far, right? Apart from the first three weeks, which is in and of itself sort of a mini-sermon series, we've covered the doctrine of God, the doctrine of Christ, which is uh, Christology is what we call it, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, which is what we call pneumatology. Of course, we spent three weeks on the doctrine of the church, or what we call ecclesiology. And then last week we had a, I think a really just uh, uplifting, encouraging, uh, joyful kind of message where we talked about sin. Anthropology. Uh, anthropology, the, the doctrine of man. Where total we talked about depravity. Total depravity. <laughs> now I'm going to just be, I'm going to just shoot straight with you. That's what we do here. It's what we're known for. I wish I could tell you that we were going to have an uplifting message this morning. I wish I could say that. I wish I could say that after last week, we're going back into the flower fields to talk about something that will (laughs) lift your spirit, but we're just simply not. Well, actually, what we're talking about this morning is the main reason we've done everything we've done up to this point. That's exactly right. And you're going to see why that is true. We are talking this morning about the doctrine of Satan. Satanology. Is it Satan? Satan. Some of you, some of you that know what that was, are shame on you for knowing that. Unbelievable. I've only heard the joke. I've never actually seen it. You know, because I don't watch anything. I just pray and read my Bible. So, uh, some of you may be wondering, though. You know, why are we studying this? Why are we spending our time on this? And and I would say to you simply because it's who we're at war with. It's who we're at war with. Uh, I had breakfast this past week with one of our elders, Bob Hoffman, and Bob and I were talking about, we were just coming off of Memorial Day, and so we were talking about our Memorial Day and kind of what we did to honor those who have fallen, and, and, uh, and you know, he and I both watched war movies, and, and uh, so we were talking about that, and I was just talking to him about my fascination with Vietnam, the Vietnam War. There's so many things about that war that are are just very, very interesting to me. Apart from uh, the, the stories of the individuals there and then the socio-political climate that was going on in the background, there's just a lot in that war that is, is very intriguing to me. And Bob said, you know, Bob served during the Vietnam War. He was in, I think, the Philippines is what he said, uh, providing support in the Navy. And he was providing support for Jim Bauer. For Jim Bauer, and, 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 yeah, exactly. And uh, what's that? Glenn and, and well, yeah, uh, Glenn Thompson and yeah. some of those guys. And Thank goodness for him, because without that, they would have had nothing Absolutely, could do. So Bob said to me, he said, do you know why that war was so difficult? And I was thinking to myself, well, like, all wars are difficult. They're, it's war. And he said, it was so difficult because we didn't know our enemy. 
We didn't know our enemy. We, you know, we, we, there would be soldiers walking through farm fields and, and all of a sudden a farmer had a bomb. We, we didn't know there was a lot of deception that was, that was had during that war. They, they, would, they would hide. The other parts of the, the opposing forces would hide until they had the upper hand and then they would attack when they were least expecting it. And then before you knew it, they were back into hiding. They, they used deception and, and they used uh, the shadows to really cloak themselves in the way that they fought. They didn't know their enemy. And, and there's a principle there. There's a life principle there in that war that we can really see, I think, pretty clearly that says this. It's hard to win a fight when you don't know who you're fighting. It's hard to win a fight when you don't know who you're fighting. Uh, and, and as I was preparing this past week, that kept coming back to me. It's hard to win a fight when you don't know you're, you're fighting. And it, it occurred to me, so many Christians lose so many battles spiritually because they don't know their enemy. They don't know who they're fighting. So we need to study this. We need to understand who our enemy actually is. When Paul says in Ephesians 6.16, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, so many Christians today don't really know who the evil one is or how he operates or what he's like or what he's not like. We need to know our enemy. And what, what so many Christians do know about the enemy was likely derived from TV or movies or myth, which is not helpful at all. And, and Dante's so, Inferno. Or Dante's Inferno, exactly. <laughs> and, and so we need to come to the Scriptures and really develop a biblical theology for who Satan really is. How does he operate? And so we're going to do that this morning. And I think you'll find this message both um, interesting. I think we're going we're to say a lot of things this morning that, that will probably surprise you or challenge you. And, and also... And disappointing. Uh, and, and disappointing, yeah, Absolutely. We're just disappointed. We're just disappointed. So let's begin with Satan's operation in the Old Covenant. In the Old Covenant. Now, initially, I was going to talk about the origin of, of Satan. I, I thought that would be a good place to begin, the origins of the enemy. But I decided to move away from that because there's so little in the Scripture that really explicitly deals with his origins. There's a couple of passages attributed to him. Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28... Neither of these passages are explicitly about him. They've been applied to him, but really over only the last 100 to 150 years has that been the case. Historically, uh, those are not passages that have ever even been uh, oriented towards him. And so rather than speculating about his origins... Right there, you just disappointed a lot of people. I did, because right they were going, dang it, I knew that was, just, I knew that was about I him. I just knew that had to be it. Rather than speculating, we're going to talk about what is explicit. Here's what we know for sure. His name or his title is Satan. Uh, he was cast down to earth by Michael the archangel permanently after Jesus' resurrection. That will surprise some of you. We'll talk about that in a little while. And he brought a third of the angels with him. That's what we know for sure about his origins. And that all comes actually not even from the Old Testament, from the New Testament in Revelation chapter 12. But as far as when Satan turned evil, when he became the prince of darkness or anything prior to that, we, we don't know anything about that. It's all really cast to myth and uh, ancient Jewish literature. There's a, an idea in the churches that he was a worship leader prior to this. That actually comes from a bad translation of uh, the King James Version where it talks about his pipes. Um, and people have attributed that to his vocal cords. You know, um, did I tell you this this week? I don't think so. Uh, I, the, the old saying <clears throat> that a lot of pastors have, uh, have used, which relates to the worship leader thing, is that when Satan fell, he fell into a choir loft. <laughs> That is a good one. Now, some of you don't have a clue what he's even meant by that, but if you've ever pastored a church with a choir director oh, and a choir, man. Uh, it, 
It is true. It can be great or it can be horrible. It is true. And when he fell, he fell into a choir loft. Okay, go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh, that's good. No, hey, that that was a free one. That was worth the Hey, worth I had a price. friend. I had a friend in Florida, a guy I went to college with, went to seminary with. Uh, he had a worship leader, choir director back then, who actually was having an affair. And he called him on it and was going to fire him. And the, the choir had such authority in the church that the police had to escort him and his wife out of the church on the Wednesday night, their last night, because they didn't care if he was having an affair or not. That's escort the pastor out. Yeah, the pastor, not the, not worship, the worship leader. So if you've had an experience like that, uh, then you Satan agree. fell into the choir loft. He fell into a choir loft. Okay, we, that's why we don't have a choir loft, by the way. Exactly, exactly. No, no chance. That was free. Free stuff. This wasn't even in the notes. It wasn't even in the notes. So let's talk about the, uh, the operation of the enemy in the Old Covenant. There are really three primary roles that we see him operating in, three or four, in the, in the Old Testament. Number one is uh, he operates as the tormentor, the tormentor. We find this in Job chapter one. Everyone's familiar, I think, pretty much with, with Job. Even if you don't have a church background, you've probably heard the story of Job. Uh, Job chapter one, verse six and seven says this, there was a day when the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. So at this point, Satan had access to heaven. He could go from heaven uh, back down to the earth and from earth back up to heaven. Now, he can no longer do this. We're going to talk about this in a little while. Uh, but at this point, he can. He comes to heaven. He speaks to God. And in this dialogue, God mentions to Satan a man named Job who's upright. He's, he's someone who is after the Lord's heart. And Satan basically says to him, if you let me torment him, take everything he values away from him, he will no longer worship you. And Job 1 verse 12 says, The Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. And so Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. So God gives Satan permission then. You can take anything that belongs to him away from him. Only don't kill him. Leave him alive. Everything else is on the table. So we see Satan in this role as a tormentor. And that's precisely what he does to Job throughout the first whole half, three quarters of the book, is torment him, take everything way, from him. This is descriptive scripture, yes. not prescriptive. This is describing what God did right. in one situation. It is not saying that, God Satan, does this has, everywhere. that yeah. Satan has the same access right. to you. He does not. Number two, he, uh, he operates as the accuser, the accuser. Zechariah chapter three, we come to a place in the scriptures that presents itself almost as a courtroom scene where God is the judge, he is standing ready to judge, Zechariah is standing before him, and in verse 1 it says, and Satan was standing at his right hand to accuse him. Now it's interesting, this is an interesting passage, James and I have actually preached on this before, Joshua is actually guilty here. If, if you continue to read verse 3, it says Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. He was impure. He was stained. He was guilty. So it's interesting that Satan is accusing him of sin, and it doesn't seem like he's wrong about it. He's got it right. He's got it right. Now, uh, last week we talked about the total deprav the doctrine of total depravity and the reality that we are all guilty of sin. And so something that we can kind of derive out of this is that one thing that Satan desires to do is accuse the people of God. In Revelation 12, he calls Satan the one who accuses the brothers day and night before God. This is what he wants to do. He knows that you're guilty. He knows that you have sin. And he knows that he can bring those sins before a holy judge and know that he's not wrong about it. Mm -hmm. 
So he's an accuser. He's a tormentor. He wants to take, he wants to steal, kill, and destroy. And he wants to accuse you before the righteous one. Number three, he is the executioner. Uh, Now this one is, I think, surprising textually. It shouldn't surprise you that he's the executioner, but but surprising in the scripture because you're not going to see his name actually in your translations. Uh, Numbers chapter 22 a, a passage I'm sure you're all very familiar with. Um, it was my devotional text. This morning, yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's actually one that, of, of all the chapters in Numbers, probably one that most of you are at least a little familiar with, Balaam and the donkey. If you remember uh. this one, Balaam is riding the donkey and he keeps, he keeps hitting the donkey and threatening the donkey because the donkey uh. keeps moving off the path because the donkey sees something that Balaam himself cannot see. And in Numbers 22, 22 tells us why. It says God's anger was kindled against Balaam because he went. He was not supposed to go where he was going. And it says, and the angel of the Lord took his stand in the way as his adversary. So it presents this path that Balaam is going down on a donkey. And there is an angel standing dead in the center of the road. And it says he has his sword drawn, indicating he's ready to execute. He's ready to kill Balaam. What's interesting is the word for adversary in the Greek is, or in the Hebrew is probably better translated as executioner, not adversary. He is standing in the way as his executioner. You want to know another interesting little detail about the word adversary? It's the Hebrew word Satan, Satan's name. So Satan is the executioner by name or title. He is someone who executes people who have fallen into sin. And in judgment scenes of the Old Testament, it seems like he is the one killing people. This is one of the things, again, Jesus says he steals, he kills, he destroys, he is a tormentor, he is an accuser, and he is an executioner. Now you'll notice that in those three descriptions, I didn't mention Genesis chapter 3. And you might be wondering why. Now, to be fair, James and I both firmly believe that the serpent is Satan. But I'm only giving you the three cases where actual Satan's name is used in the text. These are the only. Genesis 3 is my assignment. Well, and that too. Um, I was going to kind of toss it off to you, but I'm just telling them (laughs) why Satan's name is not ever actually found in Genesis 3. We, We understand that Satan is the serpent from a later point. And so, secondly, Talk about uh, Satan's ownership. Now, you, you get right off the beginning just from the, the simple survey that Derek did that Satan is not on your side. No. He's not on our team. He's not out to seek our best. He is a tormentor, accuser, and executioner. So he, there's nothing about him that should cause any kind of warm fuzzies. Another little thing, by the way, Satan is worshipped all over the world but it is done mostly in secret. But the statistics of satanic worship it would, is far exceeds what the average individual's even understanding of it is today. But having said that, let's talk a little bit about Satan's ownership. In other words, what has Satan got control over? Because this is a big issue for a lot of Christians today. Really, well, what can he do? What can he not do? What, what is under his power? What is under his authority? And the first thing I would say to you is that Satan owns this world, Mm. okay? Now, by ownership, I don't mean by ownership of original title deed, but by temporary dominion, that God has temporarily, for a period of time, given Satan dominion in this world system. Now, it is going to come to an end, but 
from this point forward, right now, he has ownership over this world. And I know a lot of people have a hard time wrapping themselves around that, but that is the testimony of Scripture. In 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, Paul referring to him, he says, the God of this world. He's referring to Satan in the context. The God, now that's a little g, but the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Now, as I said, by calling him the God of this world, that's not with a capital G, that is with a little g. But it does mean that he has dominion, he is the ruler of this world system. Jesus Christ is not the ruler of this world. God the Father is not the ruler of this world. He has, by his sovereign power, temporarily turned that authority over to the, to the enemy. Now, that's why we are warned over and over and over in the New Testament as believers to keep a very loose relationship with this world and the anything that is attached to it. Yep. James chapter 4, verse 4 tells us that friendship with the world is hostility toward God. So when you are in a deep, empathetic friendship relationship with this world or the things in of this world, that is actually hostility with God because the anti-God, Satan, is in charge of this world. He dominates it. He owns it for this period of time. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 through 17, we are, we are commanded, do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. You can't love God with a big G and love the things that the little g God is in control of. So don't love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in this world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life, and we've taught on that before, is not from the Father. It doesn't come from the Father, but it's from the world. And this world is passing away and all of its desires, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. Are you beginning to get this picture? Jesus himself said that he was not the God of this world. He was not the Lord of this world. In John 18, 36, he said, my kingdom is not of this world. Jesus is the king of a kingdom, but it is not the kingdom of this world. That's it right. is the kingdom of God. And so... It is the domain of the enemy, and so we are therefore, we must live in the world, but we are told that we are not to be what? Of the world. We are not to be of the world. We are not to hold on to uh, tenaciously to, to the world, to the things that are in the world. Obviously, we use the things of the world. We are, uh, the, all of that, we live here, but our attachments, our affections are not to be attached to this world. I love Paul's words in Colossians where he says he has transferred you from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. That's right. It's got that transferring, you're not here, you belong here. Absolutely. We, and we're strangers, the Hebrews yes. talks about. Yes. We are sojourners. Yes. We're, we're passing through yeah. a kingdom and a time of which we are not citizens. Uh, we right. are foreigners in this place and we are citizens of the kingdom of God. This world and everything in it is not under the dominion and the control of God or Jesus Christ. It is under the, the, the dominion of Satan himself by God's sovereign decree yep. for a period of time. He couldn't do it if God had not allowed it, but for a period of time, by God's decree, 
He is running the show on earth. Second of all, not only does he own the world, but he owns all who are of the world. Now, let me explain what I mean by that. We go back to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3 is the, the, the uh, account of the fall of mankind in the garden. And after the fall, God speaks to Eve and he speaks to the serpent who is the representative of Satan. We don't know actually if that's Satan or Satan's representative, but he represents the evil one uh, who is tempting. He's the representative of Satan. And verse 15 of, of, of chapter 3 is an interesting verse in Genesis. I mean, this is right off the bat. At the very beginning, God says something that is really intriguing. I will put enmity, speaking to the serpent, I will put enmity, I'll put hostility, in other words, between you and the woman. Now get this. And between your seed, in other words, your descendant, and between her seed. He, now he's been talking about seed, and all of a sudden he switches to a personal pronoun and says, he shall bruise you on the head. That's a, and that is a, a head wound, mm -hmm. is a deadly wound. Yep. And you shall bruise him on the heel. That's not a deadly wound, but it's a wound. Now notice the verbiage that is used in the third chapter of Genesis. Now we can read this from the New Testament and easily see this, okay, what's being referred to. At the time, not so easy because we live on this side of the cross. Notice he says about the seed of the woman. That is the only place in Scripture when procreation or descendants are referred to as being referred to as the seed of the woman. The woman has no seed. The seed comes from the man. The egg comes from the woman. And so when it's talking about descendants or ancestors in Scripture, it's always referring to the seed of the man, and that is biologically correct. But the seed of the woman here, obviously then, is not referring to humankind. It is Her seed is not humankind. That would be Adam's seed, right? Are you with me? Come on, folks, I'm not just talking out of the air here. Help me out here. So the seed of the woman is not referring to humankind. It is referring to Jesus because he says her seed, and then he says, and he will bruise you on the head. So right in the third chapter of Genesis, before anything goes on toward the cross, we are already getting an indication that God is working and has a plan for the ultimate defeat of this man. So, who are the seed of Satan? If the seed of the woman is Jesus, who is the seed of Satan? We are. We are. Humankind is. You see, Jesus was the seed of the woman because there was no seed of the man involved in the birth of Jesus. That's why the virgin birth. So humankind is actually being referred to here, and it is consistent through all of the Scripture, as the seed of Satan. Now folks, this is hard to hear. Just like what last week when we talked about, well, what does the Scripture say about the nature of mankind outside of Christ? Totally depraved. Totally depraved. Dead in trespasses and sin. I mean, it's, it's horrible stuff to hear. But we got to understand it because then we can begin to appreciate grace and mercy and forgiveness and salvation. And in this whole doctrine of, of Satan, 
we're getting back to the same thing. That we are not, in ourselves, children of God. We are children of Satan. Ephesians 2.3, after Paul informing us and reminding us that we covered last week, that we are dead in trespasses and sins, spiritually dead. He says, we were, in verse 3, we were by nature, by the very nature that we inherited, from our spiritual ancestor, we were by nature children of wrath. Not children of God. Children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Oof. He's saying, you Christians, you in Ephesus, who were once dead in trespasses, God has made you alive. You've got to understand that at one time, you weren't children of God. You were children of wrath just like the rest of the entire human race. Children of wrath. Ephesians 2.12, remember that, were, that you were at that time, before Christ, you were separate from Christ, you were excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, you were strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in this world. Should I keep on? First, yeah, I'm yeah. going to, would you going. give me permission or not? Keep going. First, John Chapter 2, verse 15, he says, Don't love the things in the world or the things in the world, because if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now, folks, what I'm trying to get here is help you understand. What does Satan have control over? What does he own? He owns the world and everyone who is not in Christ. Because we are all born not children of God. We are born the seed of Satan. Children of wrath, excluded from God in this world, and having no hope. Now, why am I emphasizing that? I'm emphasizing it because it is so popular on, among people and among many Christ followers who do not understand this truth to speak about, well, we're, of humankind as all being children of God. You know, Oprah loves to say that. Well, we're just all children of God. And so many so-called Christian Preachers and teachers talk about, well, all humankind, we're all children of God. We are not children of God. That is not the testimony of Scripture. We're not children of God, folks, until we come to faith in Christ Jesus. And until that time, God has categorized us as the seed of Satan, the children of Satan, the children of wrath in this world without hope and without God. Mm. Now let that sink in, because when you understand what your genuine condition outside of Christ, then you're going to have more appreciation for the fact that in Christ He has transformed you out of the kingdom of darkness into what? The kingdom of His beloved Son. Absolutely. From that kingdom where you were a Bonafide card-carrying citizen into the kingdom of God where you now become a card-carrying bonafide citizen. This is why also the seed of Satan and the seed of Christ, the, the Scripture uses the terminology that when we do come to faith, we are children by what? Adoption. Not by birth, by adoption. Because we were by birth children of wrath. Children of Satan. The seed of Satan. Now, John 1.12 then gives us this picture. He's talking about 
In the beginning, verse 1 was God, the Word was a Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And he talks about this Word who was the light of the world. And then verse 12, John comes and he says, And as many as received Him, He gave the authority, the Greek word is exousia, the power, the right. He gave the authority to become the children of God. Who has the authority to say, I am a child of God? Those who have come to faith in Christ. Mm. As many as received Him, He then gives us the authority as His adopted children. Look, you can use my name now. You are my child. You are legitimately my child. I give you the authority. I give you the right. I give you the, the, the power to claim I am a child of God. And God has the authority to do that because He adopted us in His Son Christ Jesus. He signed the adoption papers. We are now legally His children. He said, now you can go out there and say you are a child of God because I've given you authority. But until that time, you do not have the authority. You do not have the right to say you are a child of God. You have the right and the authority to call yourself by the name of your father. You are a child of Satan. Does this surprise any of you? This is why when, when, when Jesus confronts the Pharisees in John 8, 44, he says, you are of your father, the devil. He's exactly right. This is why in 1 John 3, 10, it says, by this it is evident who are children of God and who are children of the devil. This is terminology that you see all through the New it's Testament. It's all through the New Testament. We just kind of skip right over it and right. don't even think about what it means. Because we hear Oprah and we hear preachers say this kind of claptrap. It's ridiculous. Yep. It is, it is set up this way for us to understand the incredible depth of the grace of God. That He would take those of us that were the spawn of Satan Himself and by grace, not by anything that we have done or that we deserve, that He would adopt us into His family by Jesus Christ and forgive us and cleanse us and give us His name. Folks, that's grace. Yep. Unearned. And anything less than that understanding of who we are outside of Christ reduces grace. Remember I said to you last week, this is not part of the note, so we may not get through. That's all right. You remember last week we talked about that there is an inverse relationship to our understanding of who we are and our understanding of grace. As our view of ourselves go up, our view of God's grace has to go down. Because if I've got something to offer, then I don't need the fullness of God's grace. But as I come to the understanding that I am a child of wrath, the spawn of Satan, without hope in this world, when I come to that understanding, yet I now say I'm in Christ, all of a sudden the grace of God has to go way up there. Yep. And I have this great appreciation mm. for what Jesus... See, this is not for us to feel bad about ourselves. This is for us to, to understand ourselves. And to delight in grace. And to delight in grace. Amen. So, what does Satan own? He owns this world and he owns everyone who is not in faith in Christ. They are not children of God and none of us were mm. until we place faith and trust in Christ. Now that sounds like old fire and brimstone preaching. I know it does. It's just the truth of what God's Word says. Now, we're going to talk about 
What's this dude up to? Yeah, let's talk about his operation his in, in the New Covenant. We talked about it in the Old Covenant. Let's talk about it in the New Covenant. We're going to begin during the time of Jesus, during the time of Christ. Uh, this is a, an interesting, and I, and I want you to just go back for a moment to what I talked about in the beginning, those three titles, right? Tormentor, accuser, executioner. Those are the only three places in the entire Old Testament where we see his name explicitly. You've got to understand that. He is virtually behind the scenes the entire time. He shows up here and there and one other place, and that's it, and the whole entire Old Covenant. But when you get to the New Testament, have you ever noticed that in particularly the Gospels, when you're watching Jesus' ministry on the earth, it seems like the satanic and demonic activity just gets really out of hand really fast. It's like 100%, man. Yeah, it's like there are a few places in the Old Testament, and then otherwise, behind the scenes, all of a sudden you get to the New Testament, Jesus is born, things go very crazy very quickly. Satan appears to Jesus in the desert, remember that, when he's fasting? And then you have all of these demon possessions where the, the, the disciples are going and, and, and performing exorcisms, and you've got the man of the tombs, the, the garrison demoniac, and I am legion. And, and then even later on, Bob Bennett. Bob Bennett, yeah. Man of yeah. the man of joke. tombs. Uh, and then you get, you, get, uh, you get Satan entering Judas before he betrays Jesus. The New Testament tells us that as well. There's, it's just a lot all of a sudden. And the question it, becomes why? It's just why? like he's kind of thrown off the veil. Yeah. And, and yeah. here I am, folks, in full, in full swing. Full view. Yeah. yeah. So why? Revelation chapter 12 tells us. Now, this may come as a surprise to some of you, and, and I think this is going to be fascinating for some of you as well. Not all of Revelation is about future events. You need to understand that. Some of Revelation has already taken place. Some of it harkens back to other and biblical moments. what happened previously. Right. Revelation 12 is one of those places. It, it, Revelation 12 begins by telling us about a woman who is pregnant. And I don't have time to go into all the imagery, but just trust me when I say the woman is Israel. Okay? The woman is Israel in this picture. And it says that the woman is pregnant with a child, and that child is who? Yeah, good, good Sunday school answer, Jesus. Jesus. Right. Jesus. You're right. Now, Revelation 12, verses 3 and 4, explain another character. It says, Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. This is Satan, by the way. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven, and he cast them to earth. This is the third of the angels falling and becoming what we now know as demons. And this is telling what happened way before yes. Christ. Yes, well, and you're going to see why here in a moment. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. So understand the flow of events. Satan and de the demons, a third of the angels become demons, are on the earth. They are waiting for the Messiah to be born for the sole purpose that they might kill him. Okay? But they fail. Verse 5, she gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all of the nations with a rod of iron. But listen, her child was caught up to God and to his throne. So what is going on? Satan convinces a third of the angels to fall. They're waiting for the birth of Jesus. Jesus, They, they plan to kill him. There's why, this is why there's so much demonic activity happening during the time of Christ. Because they are, at this point, in full-on attack mode. They are trying to destroy the child, and they think they win. Satan even enters Judas, and Judas betrays him. Judas is one of the inner 12. They think they've got this thing done. Jesus dies. We've won. And without even knowing it, they're fulfilling God's sovereign plan. They're fulfilling, exactly. 
And what happens? Christ rises. He ascends to the right hand of the Father. But check this out. Revelation 12 goes on even further and tells us what happens after this. Directly after this, while Satan is licking his wounds, shocked that he didn't actually kill the child, it says that Michael, the chief prince of all the angels, comes with his heavenly army and absolutely beats down Satan and his demons. A war breaks out. Michael instigates it. That's what's interesting. Michael comes in with the first punch, and he beats Satan and his demons, and it says the result of this fight is that they are imprisoned now on the earth permanently. They can no longer go up to heaven like he did in Job. He can no longer go into the presence of God and accuse Zechariah. And you need to understand that. This is what that means. Satan will, will use his schemes to convince you that he is accusing you before God in heaven. And you need to understand, that is a lie. That is a lie from hell. He can't go before God and accuse you. Romans 8.1, there is therefore now, now no, no condemnation. condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And Revelation 12 even confirms this. It he says, can accuse you. He can accuse you, but he but can't accuse before you before God. God. And it, what, it, what Revelation 12 says is that he is the one who accuses the brothers day and night and that he is, what, overcome by the blood of the Lamb. That when he accuses you, when he whispers in your ear those accusations, you need to understand, Christ follower, that the blood of Jesus protects you from that. He can no longer go before God and accuse you of those things. They're true. You do have sin. You do have sin that you need to be in constant working out your salvation with fear and trembling and confessing your sin and all the things that the New Testament gives us, but you are not condemned. You are set free. You are forgiven. You are free of judgment. He has no longer the access to do this. So understand the flow of events so far. Old Testament, very behind the scenes. Jesus, right before Jesus' birth and at his time on the earth in the flesh, Jesus, or Satan is in full attack mode. Demons, Satan, demonic powers, it is in 100% capacity. But then Jesus ascends to the right hand of the Father. Satan is trapped on the earth. And then the question becomes, what happens next? What's happening now during the church age? Now get this. This is important because this says he no longer has the ability to do what he did with Job. That's right. He has no ability no. to make you sick. No. He has no ability to make you do anything. He does not have that ability. He can't take anything from you. He can't add anything to you. This is important. Because so much of what's going on within the charismatic movement of Christianity almost elevates Satan to the level of having the power and the authority over your life as God himself. Do you want to know, you want to know how, I wasn't going to go here, but do you want to know how... Go ahead, let's go there. Do you want to know how he attacks Christians today? Now, don't steal my thunder. Oh, I'm not going to go there. Okay, okay. No, he, he attacks, I'm talking physically. You're talking oh, about how oh, he okay. torments Job. Do you want to know how he physically attacks Christians today? through world systems, through persecution. Because this world belongs to him, mm -hmm. he controls the whole world. He controls the governing forces. He controls everything that is at play. It's why right after this, historically speaking, how do Christians primarily die? By execution through Rome. By governments. By governments. Thus, if you trust as a Christ follower what any human government tells you about its protection of you, you are a fool. Because this is the way he persecutes, is by human government. This is his power. He owns the world and everyone who does not belong to Jesus. 
And so he can use those pawns in his game to destroy, and that's precisely what he's after. Now, what Revelation 12 tells us, and what Revelation Anon tells us, is that this, it is setting up a two-kingdom system, the kingdom of the lamb, the kingdom of the dragon, and the dragon will wage war against the lamb over and over and over and over and over, and it will seem very bad until Christ comes back. About half of this, folks, is unscripted this morning, yeah. okay? We're just pulling on knowledge from 40-something years. We're well, just you're preaching. not even that old. No. But of, of studying the Word of God. This is such an important message for you to understand. Really because so much of what He's able to do is because we don't understand what He can and He cannot do. And so we get sidetracked. So should I do this real quickly? Do it quick. Okay. I'll do mine in four. Four minutes. Okay, all right. So we're talking about what's he up to during the church age? What can he do now? What are his tools in his bag? Well, understand that Jesus informed us that Satan at his very core is a liar. Okay? It, deception is his game. John 8.44 Jesus was speaking to those who had rejected him, those religious leaders of the Jews, and he said, well, you're of your father the devil. That's what Derek referred to a moment ago. And you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Hmm. None. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature. For he is a liar and he is the father of lies. So now that he no longer has the ability to do what he was able to do at one time, what does he do now during the, the, the church age and while we're waiting for the finality of this thing for Jesus to come again and create a new heaven and a new earth? He is lying. And by the way, what was the first lie? In the garden. That you could become like God. He, sh he, he, he showed his nature at the very beginning. And Jesus said, well, you should not be surprised when he lies because that is his nature. He's the father. And lies. he is the father of all lies. That's why, listen folks, Christian, you are never more reflecting the nature of the devil than when you lie. Oof. Never. You are reflecting when you lie for whatever reason. It's a birth of, for, if it's CYA, it doesn't matter what it is. No amens? No amen. <laughs> when you lie, you are reflecting the nature and the character. Sometimes through the years, people have gotten hacked off at me because I press for the freaking truth. If you're going to leave the church, you tell me the truth. Don't you give me some smoke in my face. Because at that point, we open the door for the enemy to do, to do the work. Whatever it is you're going to do, get to the truth. Don't be covering your rear end. Don't be trying to soft pedal this thing. You get to the truth. Because as long as we don't get to the truth, we open ourselves for the enemy. Now, that's, that was for you also. That was really good. Okay. <laughs> I was really proud of you. Okay. So what is he doing now? So what is he doing? We're going to have to, we got seven minutes to do this. Okay, let me tell you what he's doing. He is creating false teachers. Okay? He isn't advertising himself the way he did in the time of Jesus. Because if he did, we would easily recognize him today. He comes to us disguised under the cover of darkness. Ephesians 6, 7 warns us that we are to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. That means he is scheming. That is deception. Matthew 7, 15. Beware of false prophets 
who come to you, how? In sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Now, Jesus is warning those who are going to carry into the church age. He's not going to come to you in His full revealed as a wolf. He's going to put on the clothing of a sheep, and He's going to come. Because if the wolf howls, then He's going to alert the sheep, He's going to alert the shepherds, and He's going to alert the dogs. So He comes in sheep's clothing. If he dresses as a sheep or as a shepherd, he can wreak havoc among the flock. So Jesus told us that false prophets, false teachers, and false shepherds would rise up after this time. Mark 13, 22, he says, For false Christ even, and false prophets will arise, and they will show signs and wonders. You know what's interesting to me in the Christian community? Just because some preacher somewhere says he did a miracle, everybody just bows and, and scrapes before him. Jesus said, look, they're going to be doing signs and wonders in order to do what? In order to not lead you to Jesus, but to lead you astray into error. And if possible, he says, even to deceive the elect of God. It's not possible to deceive the elect of God about salvation. But he said, he's going to be so convincing that if it were possible, even the elect of God would be deceived. He is a liar, but we have the truth. We aren't helpless. So we look at five things for every false, every teacher that comes. Folks, measure it according to the truth. What does this teacher say about the nature of God? Is he balanced in teaching about the nature of God? Teaching grace, but also teaching the justice? Teaching the love of God, but also balancing that with the wrath of God? What does he say about the identity of Christ? Is he fully human and fully divine, or is he just a good person or a good teacher? You can, that's, a false, that's a false teacher if he says anything other than that he is fully human and fully divine. What about the cross of Christ? What did it accomplish? And who orchestrated it? It's a part of the sovereign plan of God. It wasn't a mistake. What about the condition of mankind? Oh, I just kind of think most people are pretty good. And oh, I just like to focus on the goodness of God. Right down in Houston this morning to 40-something thousand people and millions of people over the air, there's a false teacher that is saying that very thing. To children of the devil. The children of the devil and deceiving them. The condition of man is totally depraved and outside of Christ are the children of wrath and the seed of Satan himself. That's not an easy thing to hear, but it is the truth. And anyone who says anything different of that is not teaching you the truth. Fifth, what about the way of salvation? Is it by grace through faith alone or can you kind of do some things to make this thing happen to kind of present yourself to God? Pretty easy stuff, okay? Second of all, not only is he creating false teachers, he's creating false Christians. False Christians. Matthew chapter 13 is the parable of the wheat and tares. And, and the parable goes like this, that there was a man who had a field and he sowed wheat into the field. But while he was asleep, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat. Now, if you're not uh, familiar with ancient uh, farming practices, then you have no probably idea the difference between these two things. I have a picture, I believe, um, that shows uh, the difference between these two deals. You'll see them. They look very, very similar. If you can imagine a field with all of those intermixed together, it would be very difficult to figure out which is which. And in fact, the tear is so convincing until you get the outer part broken off and you realize there's nothing in it. There's, There's no, no substance. There's, There's no, no seed. seed. There's nothing in it. So they look like the real deal, but they don't have the seed in it. They don't have any of the innards in it that makes it wheat. Now, how do we interpret? Because there's more to this story. There, there, it, you know, Jesus talks about how uh, the, 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 the 
farm helpers come to the master and say, should we go and collect the tares? And they say, no. And, and there's all these different people. Jesus, says, you don't have enough sense to be able to tell the difference. To tell the difference. So Jesus <laughs> interprets this parable for us. This is what he says. This is Matthew 13, 37 to 39. The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. That's Jesus. The field is the world. And the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds or the tares are the sons of who? The evil one. The sons of the evil one. The, the seed of the evil one. In the midst of the wheat. And the enemy is the one who uh, 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 the enemy is the one who sowed them. Who is the devil? And the harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. So one of the things that, that Satan is doing is creating a lot of false Christians, people who look like Christians, who maybe do a lot of Christian things, but are vacant on the inside. And so it can be very confusing, can it? And you may be asking, well, how can we tell the difference? And here's the answer. You can't. Just know the truth. You can't. According to this parable, you can't. You can evaluate how people think and act. You can evaluate the fruit they bear or the lack of it. But at the end of the day, only Jesus knows. That's why he says, don't go and try to remove the tares because in doing so, you might harm some of the wheat as well. Wait, I will send my reapers who are angels and they will gather up the wheat and they will bring it to me and they will gather up the tares to be burned. Can I deliver the line? You can deliver the line. I gave it to him so I get to deliver That's fine. I heard someone say this one time, and it is funny and it is frightening. If the rapture happened right now, don't worry about church property. There are going to be plenty of people left behind to turn the air off and lock the doors. You know, I let you deliver that because uh, I'm not pre-trib. So it's all, <laughs> well, it's all good. If, if you take that premise. That's right. Now that is, a, that is a frightening but very true statement. It is. There, in this room today, folks, make no mistake about it. I have no idea who they are. There are some of you that are just an outer shell. There is no really inner transformation. I don't know who you are, but I do know this. We're called to examine ourselves, every single one of us. Examine yourselves to see if you are in the truth. He's creating false prophets and false preachers. He is creating false Christians, and he's cheating Christians out of the abundant life. We hmm. do not have time to cover this, but this is where when he can get genuine Christ followers to operate based upon his lies... He can't take your salvation away, but He can keep you from enjoying the fruit of it. And that's 2 Corinthians 10, 3-5, that our weapons of our warfare are divinely powerful. They're not of the flesh. And he, then He talks about this, and we're pulling down fortresses and every lofty thing that is raised against the knowledge of God. And then He says, by taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Hmm. This is how we are transformed. By walking in the truth. And to the extent that you, even as a Christ follower, operate in your life according to the lies of the world or the lies of the enemy, he is reducing your capacity to walk in the fullness of Christ. That's right. And the abundance of Jesus. So what do we do? Be informed, folks. Be informed. That's why know we're doing this. Truth. That's why we're doing this. Know the truth of God's Word. You will never recognize a lie unless you are intimately 
knowledgeable of the truth. So know the truth. That's why we do this. That's why we have Sunday school. That's why we preach to some of you for 40 freaking years. You need to be in a Bible study class and still many of you are not willing to give an extra hour to do that. How many of you and are you in are a... basically ignorant of the Word of God how many when it comes to a lot of these issues? How many of you are in a Bible study? Just out of curiosity, raise your hand. It's, it's, not, it's not shallow level Bible study, is it? Less than half of the people in this auditorium this morning are a part of the Bible study program of City on a Hill. My soul as a pastor, that makes me feel like a freaking failure. Because I watch your lives and I see you go out there and live according to the lies of the enemy and the deception of Satan, and it works in your family, it works in your morality, it works in your witness, it works in everywhere, in your because marriage. you don't even have enough knowledge of the truth to know you're living according to a lie. We don't do this just for our health. We don't preach this and we don't program the ministry of this church just so that we can pat ourselves on the back and say we've done good things. We will stand accountable to God for what we've done and you will stand accountable to God for what you've done with it. It's time for you, some of you to get off your butts and get serious about the truth of God because you're living half of your life according to the lies of the enemy and you don't even know it because you don't know the truth. So, be informed. Be incorporated. Be incorporated. Become a part of the body, God's people. I mean, not just showing up. Get in, in accountability. And finally, be involved in God's mission. That's right. Chuck Youngman, who went to be the, with the Lord. I was there when Chuck walked in the door the first time in 1989, I believe it was, while we were meeting in the school. Just got saved, just got sober. I was four. Blank page. Blank page. And I watched Chuck live his life, begin to live his life according to the truth of God. As he learned it, as he studied Scripture, he said, well, then that's what i got to do. That's what i got to do. And I watched that man. I watched him repair relationships in his life. I watched him walk in uprightness before man and before God. And, and I had a deep, deep abiding respect for that man who had no theological training and only had a high school degree but he had a whole lot of street creds. And he, had, he, he put the pedal to the metal. He had put his feet on the ground, and when God said it, then Chucky's going to do it. He did it. And I remember one of Chuck's sayings that just still is with me, and I'll take it with me to the grave. And he used this when helping other people in recovery, how to stay sober. But he also applied it to the Christian life. He said, if you're not doing something, you're doing something. In other words, in recovery, if you're not doing something in recovery, I'll guarantee you, you're doing something that's opposite to it. If you are doing the mission, you're not as likely to be doing things that are contrary to the mission. It's time for some big-time repentance, folks. I'm on my way out. I can tell you anything I want to, and he gets the class. 